0: But I do think it's interesting how some of the most pressing current issues also highlight the biggest long-term theme.
1: Welcome to this month's Thematic Outlook podcast, part of Cowan Insights podcast. My name is Bill Bird, Cowan Head of Thematic Content, and today we have a special episode focused on thematic investing. This episode follows the recent release of Cowan's Themes 2023 Handbook. Today, we're joined by two notable thought leaders in the realm of thematic investing. Elliot Miskin, Director of Thematic Investment at Fidelity International, which invests in multiple structural themes, including disruptive technologies, demographics, and sustainability. And Richard Spiegens, Managing Director and Head of Trends Investing at Rubico, where he manages Rubico Global Consumer Trends Equities, and equity funds that invest in future themes and trends in the consumer sector and adjacent areas. Elliot and Richard, we're honored to have you on the show this month. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Bill.
0: Thanks, Bill.
1: Today, we have a great topic, so let's dive right in. Let's start at a high level. Thematic investing can mean different things to different people. Can you each tell us a little bit about what thematic investment means to you and your specific approach to it?
0: Sure. So for us, thematic investing is about explicitly capturing long-term structural trends in our investment approach. Now, these trends might be technological, economic, social, political, or a combination. Uh, and their reach extends beyond the traditional sectoral or, or geographic boundaries that we often use in investing. So, for example, uh, the conversation around electric vehicles, you know the value chain touches upon multiple different sectors and, and geographies. And I think it's also important to speak about how we do it. Um, because not only do we have sort of different definitions of thematic investing across the industry, uh, but we have different approaches. So, Fidelity is, is a bottom up investment house. Uh, and so, it was important to anchor our approach to company specific in- investment research. Uh, you know, we rely heavily on our global investment research team with, with over 200 analysts who are on the ground in, in offices around the world. And we rely on them to identify the most exciting emerging themes at an early stage. So we're able to connect the dots between a a call with an industry expert in Toronto, with a a company management meeting in Tokyo, with a site visit in Australia. And and we think this kind of bottom up global approach is is the best way to to understand a, a new theme. And then we take a kind of data-driven scientific approach to assessing that theme. And that's to make sure it's it's suitable for an investment strategy. So we've got our own proprietary technology that that uses natural language processing and and granular revenue mapping to build an investment universe. Uh, And then we analyze these universes against key criteria, including thematic purity, sustainability, investment upside, and universe diversification. And now the reason why we do all of this is so that we can provide our clients with the best exposure to the theme. And we think clients are increasingly cautious of theme washing, uh, where uh, essentially generalist portfolios are, are marketed as thematic, but really have kind of minimal exposure to a theme. Um, so we're really focused on providing our clients with with investment portfolios where the securities over the long term are actually going to be driven by, by that long term trend we're investing in.
2: From Rico's point of view, I think, of course, there's a lot of overlap and and similarities. I mean, it's all about indeed capturing those longer term secular growth trends, which we observe in many different areas of the the universe, whether it's indeed on the consumer space, in the financial space, in the enterprise space, in the healthcare market, And I think it's very important for us that we define investable trends. So they also should be investable. There should be a wide enough investable universe uh, available right now. So we don't want to invest very early stage, but more when the trends have already become, let's say, more sustainable. Also, that there's more a proven business model, that there is a proven trajectory to already, uh, let's say, profitability or already a profitable uh, investment case to be made on the individual companies and and segments. Within, let's say, the trends we focus on, we try to identify who are the winners. Uh, so who are the companies who are going to benefit most? And part of that is, as, as Elliot already mentioned, uh, related to, let's say, the purity, because the companies with the purest exposure can normally benefit the most from these trends. But also, let's say, um, the, the type of companies you look for. So if, if a trend is already more established, it's already, already more well-known who's going to be the winner in that in the respective trend? So it's better to identify those winners. If you're a bit more earlier stage, uh, then sometimes you have to buy a basket of, for example, let's say the picks and shuffles. So the suppliers of some of these trends, because it's not very well known uh, who is going to be the winner. I think a good example, for example, was uh, electrical vehicles or, or uh, other, let's say, hardware related trends, where sometimes the suppliers are a best way to, to capture the trend early stage. And later on, you see who is going to be the winner in EVs, in smartphones, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sustainability for sure is, is important, and, and Rubico has a long history in sustainability which we include in all our investment decisions and certainly also in uh, in the thematic space. We have a couple of teams which are more sustainability driven, like, uh, for example, smart mobility, uh, electrification of the grid and things like that, of course, which are driven by sustainable teams. But also, let's say, within all our other investment teams, we look for, let's say, ESG integration in our, let's say, investment decision. But I think we'll come back on that topic later also uh, in this podcast.
1: Let's turn to specifics. Richard, you mentioned a few very specific investable themes you look at. Elliot, can can you start us out maybe with some of the more compelling themes that you see right now? And what are some of the big structural changes that you see for 2023 and beyond?
0: When we think about themes from a long-term perspective, obviously we're thinking far beyond 2023. But I I do think it's interesting how some of the most pressing current issues also highlight the biggest long-term themes. So, you know, the global energy crisis is is of increasing focus. We're talking about themes such as energy security and, and topics such as renewable power generation. And it's interesting how a topic that was mostly discussed as an environmental issue has now been sort of thrust into the spotlight from a a social and from a political perspective as as well. And uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine is is having a terrible effect on the the global food supply chain. Uh, And and that kind of heightens and and highlights the broader challenges we face over the the coming decade on feeding a growing population in in a more sustainable way. Uh, And the discussions we're having uh, in our politics on inflation, on immigration control, you know, these these lead us to think about how long-term global demographic trends are, are going to impact the world. And then of course, themes like digitalization uh, also remain extremely relevant, you know, particularly with growing conversations around digital privacy and, and new technologies like quantum computing and, and more advanced AI methods. So there's some of the things we're thinking about, you know, over the, over the next year.
1: Richard, let's bring you back in. You touched on a couple of themes earlier. What are some other things that you're looking at?
2: Yeah, so indeed, I mean, everything related to electrification, renewable energy, uh, I think these are very relevant trends, and we, we have a long history there. And and these have been trends which have been ongoing, but certainly now with more government support, I think these are only accelerating as we speak. Of course, also driven by, uh, well, the situation we're seeing in Europe, but of course, also you see in the US a lot of governance support for all these kind of uh, initiatives. So I think that's one which is going to grow in importance, I would say, uh, for, for, let's say, uh, trends and teams to be seen. The technological transformation of industries is is one which we have seen, of course, for the last 20 years, and we expect it to continue also in the next uh, decades. I think probably what you see is that some uh, segments of the of the market are more advanced in the in the the, the uh, let's say the technological transformation. So industry in, in for example con- the consumer space are certainly more advanced, like e-commerce or the advertising market, which has digitalized. But there's still very young industries as well, like uh, the, the enterprise, which is uh, running behind uh, education, healthcare, the fintech trend. Of course, are, are very ones where let's say the trend is only. Uh, A couple of years really started. So that's where a lot of uh, growth prospects are to be seen. Uh, And the last one, I would say, where we're also increasingly spending uh, and and focusing our time on is, let's say, the whole diversification of the supply chain. So you do see that given the political, uh, changing political landscape, you see that companies are changing their supply chain or looking to diversify the supply chain. Uh, There's a lot of talk about the China plus one policy. So that uh, uh, companies are not only dependent in terms of China for their supply chain, but also China is, of course, changing themselves their supply chain as well to become less dependent and diversify their risks. Uh, We see companies doing nearshoring. So, uh, for example, the U.S. is is using more places like Mexico instead of reshoring everything from, let's say, Asian markets, which also makes uh, uh, the time to delivery for your products uh, easier as well. So these are, these are certainly some of the key trends we're observing right now. But as I said, these are not things which will only work in 2023 because all the trends we are looking at are longer term in nature. So I would say this is, this is one where the ones we're probably with a little bit more interest in, uh, let's say, next year, but uh, will hold for the next five to 10 years at least.
1: Let's zoom out to the market context. This has been a difficult investment climate, to put it lightly. Uh, I don't know about you, but this is my first pandemic. Given the backdrop of what some have termed a polycrisis, uh, including high inflation, rising rates. And slowing economic growth, what if any adaptations have you made to your strategy?
0: So I think a lot of the, the issues that you mentioned have indeed created headwinds for, for thematic strategies, um, particularly those that have been associated with, with the growth style of investing. Um, so it's, it's forced us and, and I think the broader industry as well to really think about our range of thematic strategies and, and, and think about their role within broader asset allocation. Um, we've tried to, you know, within the boundaries of the thematic strategy and, and whilst maintaining thematic purity, um, to ensure uh, a, a level of, of diversification and a level of kind of style tilts within uh, within our thematic funds. So, for example, our, our sustainable future connectivity strategy balances exposure to the fast growth technology companies with some more defensive names like telcos that provide the, the network that enables this connectivity. Uh, and then in terms of asset allocation, you know, I, I don't think thematic investing is only about growth as a factor uh, investing. I think some themes uh, such as our transition materials or our sustainable nutrition strategies are actually naturally aligned to more value or, or defensive factors.
2: Yeah, I would say added to that, I mean, also here we have, of course, uh, um seen how, let's say, the trends itself are not, I would say, aren't really affected by, let's say, the the landscape in terms of the growth prospects in some cases, I think where we have made differences for sure is in in the areas where you saw a lot of capital going into this market because capital was widely and and freely available, which, of course, led sometimes to very uh, unsustainable competitive environments because money was freely available. Uh, but also investors had a very long term view i mean with rising interest rates of course the investment horizons have shortened so i think we have focused increasingly within let's say the all the the team funds on the companies which already have a proven business model right now with a proven Uh, uh, free cash flow and and profitability profile Uh, and let's say the industries who are let's say on the longer term trajectory towards profitability is certainly more questioned now so we have certainly reduced weight uh, within the respective uh, thematic strategies on these names for the time being i would say in general as said, of course in an environment where inflation will increase it's very important to have a whole lot of companies which have strong pricing power because this gives them the ability also to put through cost increases to their customers Uh, So focus on quality franchises, company with proven business models, with proven, uh, let's say, profitability and and free cash flow generation, I think is what's very important. And those are also the ones who will hold up well in, in environments where economic growth will slow down. But of course, the, the price people are willing to pay for longer term, high growth names has certainly come down in this new interest rate environment, And that's what we had to make some adjustments on. But I, I feel in general, the the teams itself have been unaffected. It's more the, the, the price you're willing to pay for these names is what has changed. Market corrections can also open up opportunities,
1: right? What's rain for the parade is food for the farmer. Uh, what kind of opportunities has the recent market reset opened up in your view?
0: so in terms of opportunities i think you know we've been uh, pleasantly surprised to see how in certain instances you know our approach to thematic purity has actually driven outperformance so for example you know in our clean energy strategy by focusing um on uh, clean energy producers in the in the immediate supply chain rather than on broader users of clean energy, we found that we weren't invested in electric vehicles names, which substantially underperformed. Um, I think it's also forced investment managers to think about the longevity of themes, you know, in line with what Richard was saying, and, and really sort of reevaluate and reassess whether those investment themes are, are still valid. You know, it makes you ask the difficult questions. And um, you know, I'm pleased to say in uh, in in, in In almost all cases, when we're looking at the themes that we've launched, we're still happy with the the long-term trajectory uh, of those themes and of those strategies.
2: Yeah, I think what what we have seen, and and I think that's the difficulty of, of, let's say, investing in these more growthy type of stocks right now, is, of course, we've seen an acceleration in growth during COVID period, which, of course, led to a massive re-rating for these companies. Now, of course, we're going into a phase where this growth will slow down also because of just tough comparisons. And the market is just, in general, figuring out what the sustainable growth rate for a lot of these higher growth companies is. Um, in, in general, the most of the teams, as I mentioned before, haven't changed also because of COVID. Uh, some some uh, trends have even accelerated during COVID and now slowed down a bit because we're catching up to, let's say, a more normal environment. But what you see in general is that a lot of let's say companies who benefited from COVID were there only for a short period of time because they just were uh, in the market in the right point of time. So they have been selling off, but they also dragged down a lot of the quality franchises, which we think will will easily survive also an environment where we're in right now. So. Uh, the opportunities I would say in general are the companies who remain well exposed to these trends, have a longer term uh, strategy, have a proven business model. Uh, they're oversold in some cases as well because they're just sold with a lot of the growth uh, and quality names right now. And that in many cases, if you have a, let's say, a bit more longer term investment horizon, so let's say a three to five year horizon, can now provide actually quite interesting uh, entry points. So it's, I would say in general, it's important to stick to your process, stick to your philosophy and look whether the the trends and the teams you are exposed to are still very valid. Uh, What, Of course, the debate is very much on what is the sustainable growth rate for these trends after COVID in a more normal year. And that's, of course, very difficult to find out. As we had a tough comparison last year, we're probably going into a recession year next year. So that's where the market is looking for a balance on, let's say, the sustainability of of some of these uh, longer term trends. But uh, I think this certainly leads to a lot of interesting opportunities to buy quality uh, franchises at a reasonable price.
1: Let's shift over to risk management and concentration factors. Uh, Given that diversification is one of the bedrocks of portfolio construction, uh, what do you do to try to avoid the risk that your portfolio becomes too anchored to one theme?
0: Sure. when we're assessing themes one of the things that we are looking for is is whether there's sufficient diversification within an investment universe to support a strategy uh, or whether all the stocks are very highly correlated for example yeah ultimately we want our individual thematic strategies to be faithful to one theme so that they can serve as the best building blocks within a broader asset allocation strategy. Um, But we also run multi-thematic portfolios that invest across multiple themes. Again, thematic purity is crucial here because what you don't want is all of the underlying individual strategies owning the same stocks or having the same factor or style exposures. So we continually monitor the commonality between our individual thematic strategies Strategies so that we can understand where the overlap is and, and what style and, and factor exposures they have and make sure that there's a um, uh, significant variety a- across our range.
2: Yes, I, I agree very much. And I would say if we look at, let's say, most of the, the, the strategies we run here at uh, Rubico Thematic Investing, that most of them have multiple trends within, let's say, one specific product. So, for example, if I take my uh, Global Consumer Trends, We have a part focus on digital transformation. One is more on the emerging middle classes. One is more on health and well-being. And as you can hear, health and well-being is probably more a defensive part of the portfolio, whereas, of course, the digital one is more the higher growth, but also normally higher return part of the portfolio. So in that sense, you try to diversify also within the strategies. Of course, if you go more to niche kind of strategies where the universe is a bit more uh, restricted, uh, you look to... uh, not to focus only on companies who are very early stage or very uh, uh, specifically because then you run too much risk and try to diversify over companies which are in different part of, let's say, the what we always call the, the hype cycle. Um, so companies which are a bit more early stage try to diversify also with holdings which are a bit more later stage in the, uh, uh, in, in the hype cycle to have different, let's say, risk exposure, uh, which gives a lot of diversification benefits as well.
1: Let's finish on the topic of uh, ESG factors. Tell us how you incorporate ESG factors into your investment process, let's start there.
0: At Fidelity, we incorporate ESG factors all the way through from the universe definition, through the theme assessment, and of course the the management of of our portfolios. Uh, And when you're investing in companies on the basis of exposure to long-term trends, that focus on sustainability is, is really heightened because of the investment time horizon. So our analysts evaluate Companies separately on, on the most relevant EES and G factors through our uh, ESG V2 rating system. Also, when, when considering the, the long-term time horizon, engaging with portfolio companies on key sustainability issues can be important, and we like to have you know, an ongoing dialogue with these uh, with these companies through that that time horizon. And ultimately, you know, as the regulatory landscape continues to evolve, you know, we expect the industry to continue to adapt, and, and of course, we, uh, we ourselves will adapt to that.
2: Yes. Yes. I think very much uh, along the same lines. Rubico has been has a, a very long history in, in sustainability investing, and I think it's very important that let's say all uh, from the start until the end, uh, ESG is being included. Indeed, in the, in the the universe uh, screening, but also and of course, very much in the fundamental analysis of the individual companies, where we take a, we have a questionnaire which we which we often use. We have a lot of. Uh, As I research uh, analysts who are doing a lot of research on all, let's say, these ESG kind of topics, uh, where we have our own proprietary data sources, but also external data sources, which we use. And I think a very important one, and I I certainly as as a PM, that's very close to my heart, is, is becoming more an active shareholder ourselves. So engaging with companies on specific topics. We always try to pick a couple of... Uh, specific engagement topics every year, where we uh, try to engage with a group of companies on specific uh, topics. This can be about um, uh, reusable plastics, it can be about cybersecurity, it can be about the social risks of gaming. I mean, there are many different topics you can think about. So there are, of course, individual engagement cases, but also certainly more broader cases where we engage with a, a group of, uh, of companies. I mean, ESG is, is not only about, let's say, looking for opportunities, but I also see it very much as a risk reduction tool. So uh, additional information in your, let's say, fundamental analysis on ESG topics can, can lead to red flags, which can uh, lead to extra uh, research you have to do on specific topics. This can be on accounting standard, but can also be on environmental policy or the way they treat their employees. Uh, so uh, we are certainly adding resources on that on that field as well to to have and try to have an edge as well to see whether we can uh, get additional research on top of the fundamental research we do as uh, as investment specialists. And how
1: do you think about the material ESG factors that drive long term value? And how do you see your approach evolving to ESG investing?
2: Well, if, if, I, if I see it, Robico, I mean, the, the way it started, it was very much by, uh, let's say we started with, with the questionnaires, which we, which we sent to companies and the ESG information you have on companies, that's the way it has started. I think now it's becoming more, and then we had, of course, our, let's say, initially our more sustainably focused products. Uh, I think in the last five to 10 years, this has certainly become really mainstream in our firm and we use it now across all of our strategies. So ESG is not only about exclusions, uh, but it's very much about, let's say, including ESG in your investment process and indeed engaging with the companies and, and try to set up the dialogue. I think that's certainly what has been the main involvement. Uh, it's not only about exclusion and, and doing some research and sending some questionnaires, but becoming more involved in, um, in let's say, engaging with the companies. And, and as as Elliot said, I mean, the, the of course, regulatory environment is changing quite quickly. Uh, I think it's also sometimes a risk that it really standardizes the whole ESG practice for the whole industry, uh, which makes it also difficult sometimes to to differentiate as a as an asset manager versus your peers. But I think it's a good way, at least, that it for the regulatory environment forces us to all uh, take these extra information sources into consideration while making your investment analysis. But but sometimes it's also more difficult to differentiate and and really say what what's your edge because it, it, it's it's well it's it's standardizes also the ESG integration for a lot of uh, players in the industry
0: so the the advances in in the industry over the last few years in particular have, have been incredibly rapid and I completely agree with what Richard was saying over the you know the the significant preference for engagement over exclusion. You know, at Fidelity, we've moved from sort of V1 of our ESG rating system where we had a single rating for a stock to a V2 where we have different metrics on the ES and G side and, and more advanced materiality mapping as well. So it's becoming a lot more granular, understanding that stocks that may look good from an E perspective may not look good from an S perspective. Um, and on the thematic side, you know, sustainability is becoming um, even more deeply ingrained into not just how we manage our thematic strategies, but but which themes we choose. So, for example, we've launched recently our sustainable biodiversity strategy and integrating uh, sustainability concerns within that strategy also interacts with thematic purity. So how do we define thematic purity when it comes to a biodiversity fund um, and having to come up with innovative approaches, uh, uh, innovative approaches there as well? As
1: we wrap up today's podcast, I want to thank Richard and for sharing their insights. This was uh, terrific, extremely helpful. And I also want to thank our audience for taking time out to listen. Happy holidays to everyone and see you next month.